This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. In 1999, a nature documentary about wolves, called Wolves, came out in IMAX theaters. This alpha female is searching for a den site. It isn't merely a personal choice, for her decision will determine the disposition of the pack. The film documents the reintroduction of wolves across the western United States. That's producer Emmett Fitzgerald. And it has everything you want in a nature documentary. Sweeping landscapes, a narrator with a rugged yet soothing voice. A potential prey. And best of all, wolf puppies. The film was designed to combat the misinformation campaigns of the ranching and hunting lobbies, which portray wolves typically as vicious killers, fit only for elimination. That's Chris Palmer, one of the film's producers. He and his team wanted to rehabilitate the wolf's image by showcasing the relationships within a pack. Rather than just a bunch of scenes of wolves ripping caribou to shreds, they wanted to show the animals working together to raise a litter of pups. Our goal was to show close-ups of a wolf pack interacting in complex, subtle ways. But filming the intimate lives of wild wolves is virtually impossible because they do not tolerate the presence of people. Still, they filmed inside a wolf's den. And in the finished movie, viewers are let into this private moment as wolf pups cozy up against their mother's belly. Because newborn pups have no way to regulate their own temperature, their mother's body heat is the only thing that keeps them warm. When the film came out, Palmer went to some screenings where audience members could ask questions. And after one screening, someone in the audience asked me, how did you film the amazing shot of the mother wolf in its den. Palmer's heart sank because the truth about that intimate scene in the wolf den wasn't pretty. Cover your ears, innocent listeners. We rented captive wolves. We rented captive wolves. The shots of the puppies in the den were not filmed in the wild. Instead, the film crew had gone to a game farm where the wolves were more used to humans and built an artificial den with cameras inside. I was suddenly staring starkly at an ethical dilemma for myself. Did I tell the truth and answer truthfully, therefore betraying our trade secrets in filmmaking? Or did I continue to lie and pretend that the captive wolves uh, were, in fact, were, were wild when they weren't? Palmer decided to come clean. And when I did this, I could um, feel the audience's disappointment. And this moment was a bit of a turning point for him. Up to that point, I think I kind of assumed, well, why would they care? But they do care. People do care. When people watch documentaries, especially science-based documentaries, they are assuming they are seeing the truth. They are seeing things that are authentic and genuine and truthful. And when they find out that is not the case, they get very upset. Of course, there's some level of illusion in all filmmaking. You're editing footage to form a narrative. We do this in radio, too. But illusions in nature documentaries exist on a spectrum. In some cases, these illusions help tell the truth about animals. But in others, not so much. 
On the far end of that truth spectrum, you know, over toward the straight up false end, is a film called White Wilderness. I still remember watching um, White Wilderness as a child when I was about 11 years old. It was a documentary produced by Disney in 1958 about the high Arctic. In this land of many mysteries, it's a strange fact that the largest legends seem to collect around the smallest creatures. One of these is a mousy little rodent called the lemming. In one scene, a herd of tiny lemmings approaches a rocky cliff along the ocean. They reach the final precipice. This is the last chance to turn back. The little furballs peer over the edge, and then... Yet over they go, casting themselves bodily out into space. They hurl themselves off the cliff and into the water below. The narrator tells us that most have survived the plunge, but then they begin to swim towards the horizon. But gradually, strength wanes. Determination ebbs away. And soon the Arctic Sea is dotted with tiny, bobbing bodies. It's dramatic stuff. Except this entire sequence was staged. The producers went to the Arctic, bagged up a bunch of lemmings, and flew them to this cliff along a river in Alberta. And they put them on a turntable that you don't see in the film, and they, and they threw them off the cliffside into the water and filmed it. And lemmings don't actually hurl themselves off cliffs. Some lemming species do experience dramatic fluctuations in population size, leading to some creative 19th century hypotheses about what might be going on. But the idea of a mass lemming suicide ritual is entirely apocryphal. White wilderness didn't invent the lemming suicide myth, but it certainly helped to spread it. The film was seen by millions of people. It even won the Oscar for Best Documentary. Everybody has learned that from that film and been misled by it. So what we put in these films is important, and that means they, it's so important that they are made um, not only entertainingly, but made um, accurately and, and ethically because they do have an impact. The Lemming scene is an especially egregious example of dishonest filmmaking. But smaller acts of deception happen all the time. And after his experience with the Wolf documentary, Chris Palmer started looking into this stuff. He found filmmakers luring sharks closer to the camera by dumping buckets of fish guts into the ocean, and a producer using CGI to edit a sea otter into a shot. Palmer is particularly bothered by filmmakers that harass animals to try to get them to do something exciting. He thinks all this happens because of a race for ratings. And when you focus so, so much on race like that, you inevitably uh, move towards programs that are highly sensational and overly dramatic. A lot of Palmer's criticisms have to do with the visual side of filmmaking. But any conversation about the accuracy of nature documentaries inevitably ends up on the topic of sound. That's because in most wildlife films, the sounds you hear were not recorded while the cameras were rolling. Which makes sense if you think about how different the two technologies are. Most filmmakers use really long telephoto lenses to film animals from a safe distance. But there's no sonic equivalent of a zoom lens. For good audio, you need to get a microphone really close to the source of the sound, which can be difficult or dangerous to try and pull off while the cameras are rolling. You can't just walk up to a lion and clip a lapel mic on its mane. And so many of the subtle movement sounds, a chimpanzee rustling through leaves or a hippo squelching in the muck, 
they don't come from animals at all. They're made by Foley artists. So a Foley artist's job is to basically perform all that movement sound for a film, essentially. This is Richard Hinton. Yeah, I, I sit in this, this windowless room watching a television, making weird sounds for animals. Hinton performs in a studio with trap doors in the floor. And underneath the floor you have six pits, each filled with a different material. He says Foley artists spend so much time playing around in these pits that they call each other pit monkeys. Uh, there's one gravel, one's filled with sand, one's full of dirt, uh, one's kind of dirt and grass, and then one's a solid stone slab. Each pit is mic'd up for high-quality sound. Hinton watches a silent version of the scene on an HD screen, and he tries to match the movement of the animals. Usually I'm, I'm sat on the floor, cross-legged, and I'm, I'm kind of leant over the pit so I can control my weight and the amount of weight that I'm putting into the movement. He starts with the feet. As the animals move, he tries to match their footfalls with his hands. When you're foliating animals, you usually use your hands rather than your feet because you have more control. If it's hooves, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll use the tips of my fingers and I'll really drive them into the surface so you get that hard attack. If it's something like a lion, then I'll use the flat of my fingers and you get a more paddy, you know, kind of stealthy, kind of stalking kind of weight to it. Hinton has been doing Foley for years and has worked on many big nature documentaries, including Planet Earth 2. With all that practice, he says he can often get it right in just a single take. I've been doing it long enough now to know, you know, that point at which a cheetah's about to go from a stalk to a sprint because of its shoulder movement and just the way it pins its ears back. And, you know, the more of this stuff that, that you do, you start picking up on these little visual clues that all wildlife gives you in terms of what it's about to do with its behavior. So many wildlife films focus on the exact same cast of marquee species, like elephants, leopards, crocodiles, that Henton rarely comes across footage of an animal he's never foliated before. When you first come across something you haven't done, you, you do spend a couple of minutes just, just watching the footage through, seeing, right, well, okay, well, how, how is this thing moving? How, you know, what's its rhythm? How do its shoulders work in, in relationship to its feet? For more complicated sounds, Hinton has a giant storage area full of materials he's hoarded over the years. Sheets of metal, pieces of rubber, different types of rope. We've got a couple of old wetsuits. He takes out a couple of items to demonstrate. In front of me right now, I have um, some bat wings, which was actually just a pair of old gloves. Interestingly, if you use the fingertips, you get bat wings. If you flip them over and use the bit you put your hand in, you get pigeon wings. To mimic the sound of an animal walking on snow, Hinton uses a bag of dried custard. When he squeezes the bag, you get that fresh snow crunch. Sometimes he brings in natural materials from the outdoors. The studio has a big garden, and in the summer, Hinton will harvest different plants to use in his recordings. The winter, though, can be more challenging. What we'll quite often do is we'll use some old tape. Um, here I have a combination of some old quarter-inch tape, some old VHS tape. It's quite good for kind of leaf canopy work. For example, if you have 
um, something like a baboon or a chimp, and they're clashing about in a treetop. Foley artists share techniques with each other. And some tricks have become so ubiquitous that they've actually changed our understanding of the way nature sounds. I mean, this is the thing. We've been doing Foley on natural history for so long. What people actually are used to listening to is how we Foley stuff, which is kind of weird. So people expect what we do rather than what nature might actually do in real life. For example, elephant feet. We expect to hear a big, booming sound when a massive elephant foot hits the ground. But that's not what elephants actually sound like. If ever you talk to anybody that works around elephants, they will tell you that elephants make pretty much no sound at all when they walk because the, the bottom sort of like section of their foot is just one big fatty cushion. So uh, they're incredibly efficient at distributing their weight as they walk. But Hinton says that if you had no sound at all, it would just feel weird. It's very uncomfortable to see a foot the size of an elephant fill a screen and hit the floor and not hear a sound for it. Hinton tries to find a middle ground between accuracy and giving people the sound they expect. But he says the main goal of Foley is just to provide a little bit of that movement sound needed to help the film flow. Movement sounds are one thing, but then there's the distinctive vocal sounds that an animal makes. You know, a lion's roar or a cuckoo bird's cuckoo. Anything that you would term as a vocalization, i.e. a growl, a grunt, a scream, a roar, a bird call, it's all going to be as real as we can get it. But just because it's accurate doesn't mean that you're hearing the exact same individual animal that you're seeing on the screen. Unless you can see David Attenborough kneeling next to an orangutan, chances are the sounds that orangutan is making come from a different orangutan altogether. Many sound studios have massive, carefully cataloged libraries of animal recordings that sound editors will use to match the specific behavior seen on screen. And sometimes filmmakers will hire sound recordists to go out and find sounds to fit their film. Recordists like Chris Watson. My name's Chris Watson, and I'm a sound recordist. Watson usually gets a storyboard from the filmmakers, and it's his job to go and find sounds that match different scenes. If he's working on a lion sequence, Watson will find a pride he wants to record and carefully study their movements. And then realizing, you know, when they're off hunting or when they've gone to another location, you then go and rig your microphones um, close by where you saw them. I use very long cables and I conceal or disguise microphones near the source of the sound. Then Watson climbs into a hiding place a safe distance away and waits. It might take you two days, but then eventually that pride, three or four females and, you know, nine, ten, a dozen cubs will come back to that place and just lay down right in front of your microphones and start vocalising. Watson takes big predators like these very seriously, and he has all kinds of techniques for getting close-up sound without getting too close. He once used a really long boom to get his microphone near a cheetah resting beneath a tree. And I, over about an hour, very slowly lowered the boom down to within about um, three feet of this animal's head. And then I recorded this remarkable close-up purring sound, which wasn't even audible where we were 10, 12 yards away. 
Watson also records lots of ambient sounds, and then he sends it all to the editors who carefully piece together an accurate soundscape. In the final product, it looks like the vocalizations are coming from the animals on screen. When he can, though, Watson does try to record sound while the cameras are rolling. Synchronous sound is not impossible, he says, and it can bring a special kind of realism to the film. In the BBC documentary The Life of Birds, the director asked him to mic up a bunch of trees and bushes where he knew songbirds liked to sing at dawn. And it worked. The birds showed up right on cue and sang right into his tiny microphones as they filmed. In the early morning light, you could see the birds' breath as they exhaled from the song. Recording synchronous sound is much easier with bluebirds than, say, polar bears. But Watson wishes it happened more. He says that, in general, producers prioritize sights above sounds. They'll spend millions of dollars sending camera people all over the world to get that special shot, and then just worry about finding the right sound later on. Sometimes, though, recording the sound separately can actually enhance the accuracy of the soundtrack. In the BBC documentary Life in the Undergrowth, the filmmakers wanted to showcase this bizarre behavior of the Alcon blue butterfly caterpillar. Wood ants mistake these caterpillars for their own larvae and carry them underground to the ant colony. Once inside, the caterpillars do something remarkable. They stridulate an internal organ. I think it's about 300 hertz. I had to look up stridulate, too. It means to make a shrill sound by rubbing the legs, wings, or other parts of the body together. In this case, it's the caterpillar's attempt to mimic a hungry baby ant. This sound stimulates the ants to feed the caterpillar. So it's cross-species communication, which is actually something very special in the first place. The filmmakers would destroy the ant nest if they tried to film this in the wild. So they established a colony inside a film set and filled it with tiny periscope cameras. And to capture the sound, Chris Watson used what's called a particle velocity microphone, which can record extremely quiet sounds. And I had to go into a BBC radio studio, a very, very, very quiet place. And um, I had a selection of these caterpillars, which are then placed on uh, this particle velocity microphone, about the size of a, imagine like a pea, that sort of diameter, but it's flat. This animal was placed on top and eventually produced this vibration, which I recorded. One of the most astonishing sounds and bits of behavior that I've ever witnessed. But it would have been impossible to record it under wild conditions as indeed it was impossible to film the behavior under wild conditions. Both Chris Watson, the sound recordist, and Richard Hinton, the Foley artist, worked to give us accurate and satisfying sounds, albeit in different ways. But Watson says there's something inherently artificial in the process of making nature films. Nature documentaries are, are not reality. It, it's, it's the creation of an illusion like any other piece of entertainment. But a lot of viewers get upset when they find out that their favorite nature documentary isn't totally real. Richard Hinton, the Foley artist, says he gets reactions like this all the time. You know, when I tell people what I do for a living, people are either fascinated or they want to punch me in the face. 
Don't punch Richard Hinton in the face. I cannot stress this enough, people. Discovering all the work that goes into the final product should not tarnish it. Nature documentaries are still movies, and they need a little movie magic, just like any other film. Chris Palmer, the filmmaker from the beginning of the story, says the most important thing is that the movie magic is being used to tell the truth. He actually thinks that renting wolves like he did to show viewers how they behave in their dens was probably fine. Palmer says if he had to do it over, he'd likely do it the same way, but make it clear to the audience somehow that the scene was not recorded in the wild. Palmer thinks a lot of documentary filmmakers are doing their best to bring us accurate representations of animals in the wild. But he does see one big problem. Even some of the best work out there fails to acknowledge human impacts on ecosystems. Which is giving the impression that we don't have any environmental challenges. Palmer says that a lot of nature documentaries these days show animals as if they live in some magical fantasy world, completely divorced from human civilization. There's no shots of the nearby city or the coal mine that's encroaching on habitat. You know, you watch the shows and you think there was nothing wrong with the world, nothing wrong. Which is its own form of deception. When you make a film about, uh, about the natural world to omit any mention of the environmental challenges faced by that natural world is uh, misleading. But Palmer still believes in the power of good filmmaking. He thinks that if we want to solve big environmental challenges like species extinction and climate change, we need compelling, true stories about nature. And to tell a true story, sometimes you need a little fakery. 99% Invisible was produced this week by Emmett Fitzgerald with Sharif Youssef, Delaney Hall, Avery Truffleman, and me, Roman Mars. Katie Mingle is our senior editor, Kurt Kolstad is the digital director, and Taryn Mazza is the Baroness. All the music was composed by Sean Rial. We are a project of 91.7 KALW in San Francisco and produced on Radio Row in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Support is provided by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? When you're hiring, it can feel like a full-time job, but ZipRecruiter is here to help. Find the best candidates and get that perfect hire by posting your job on all the top job sites. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. You can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch the qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. There's no juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash 99. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash 99. One more time. Try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash 99. Support is provided by Squarespace. Every once in a while, I get this urge to start something new. There's this creative energy when you're starting a new project that cannot be beat. If you're at that stage and you're ready to take over the world, it's time to make your next move with a beautiful website made with Squarespace. They have very pleasing, award-winning templates for your website and online store that just work and look good. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever, so you can focus on the parts of the project you really want to focus on. But if you ever need any help, Squarespace provides kind, extremely non-judgmental, 24-7 customer support. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, visit squarespace.com invisible. 
Support for 99% Invisible comes from Article. Patio season and warmer weather are just around the corner, and Article has launched a new collection just in time for summer entertaining. The collection includes furniture made from proven, outdoor-friendly materials like teak, solid acacia wood, granite, galvanized steel, and rattan. Many of the pieces are versatile enough to work both indoors and outdoors and can suit a variety of styles like bohemian, industrial, and mid-century. The outdoor collection has dining tables with matching chairs, lounge chairs, coffee tables, and poofs. And as always, a flat delivery rate of $49 applies to all article orders regardless of size. Even if you're just kind of like thinking about getting new furniture right now, I encourage you to take a look at their website because it's really beautiful stuff. Visit www.article.com slash 99PI to get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Hey, so I'm going to be at the TED conference next week, so we're not going to release an episode. Just We're just going to take a week off. So this is a good opportunity for you to go through the back catalog and just pick one at random. Just try it out. And if you like it, you know, share it with somebody. We are a proud founding member of Radiotopia from PRX, supported by listeners just like you. And when I meet you, you guys always show me your coins, which is very, very sweet. And the Knight Foundation. There are still tickets available to the Radiotopia Live West Coast Tour. Portland and San Francisco are all sold out. But Seattle and LA are still available. You will be so mad at yourself if you miss this. Go to radiotopia.fm slash live for tickets. You can find the show and like the show on Facebook. I tweet at Roman Mars. The show tweets at 99PIorg. We're on Instagram and Tumblr too. But if you want to know what the word architecture means, you have to go to 99PI.org. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.